Uh, please open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5. Our passage for this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15. Once again, that's 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 15. Uh, two of my favorite, uh, what you might call gospel or worship songs of all time, are songs that we don't actually sing in church. And that's not because there's anything wrong with them. Uh, rather, it's because just sort of the way that they're laid out, uh, I don't think they work very well in a congregational setting. They're more performance music, maybe something that you'd sing to yourself. Uh, they're both older songs of the gospel or bluegrass variety. The first is Ain't No Grave. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that one or not, but it's a song about the resurrection. And what I love about it is how absolutely defiant it is in the face of death. You think of 1 Corinthians 15, when speaking of the resurrection, Paul writes, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? And that's actually sort of a taunt, right? Like the idea is that Christ's victory over sin and death is so complete that once this cosmic battle is over, there's going to be loud boasting over just how bad Jesus defeated God's enemies. You know, like the football team up 56 to nothing doing celebrations in the end zone. <laughs> That's really how the Christian is supposed to be thinking about death. So far from fearing death, the Christian should almost be able to laugh at it. And I can think of few lines ever written that capture that sentiment better than the line that's repeated in that song over and over again, ain't no grave can hold my body down. Death can do its best, right? To try to hold us captive, even mute our praise of Jesus, the song says, but there hasn't been a grave fashioned yet that can keep this body from rising again to declare his praises over and over again. Because Christ... Right, has already won the victory. So, you know, bring it, right? Do your best death, but you're not keeping this body down. And it's better compositions, it's played that way. It's just this unhinged, joyful celebration of the Christian's victory over death. I absolutely love it. It almost never fails to send chills down my spine and make the hair stand up on the back of my neck. In fact, I've told Emily... Uh, I think there are two songs that I want played at my funeral when I die, and that's one of them, and it probably should be at the end. I don't want anyone leaving that funeral thinking that this is the end of Ryan Jokey, because it's not. Not even close. If anything, it's just the beginning, right? We mourn, right, as Christians, as those with hope, and that's the last impression I want in everyone's mind, the hope that we have in the gospel because of what Christ has accomplished for us. The second song that I really enjoy is one that I have not asked Emily to play at my funeral because that's a song to be sung on this side of the grave. It's a song called Wayfaring Stranger. That's a very old, old tune and not as familiar, I think, as Ain't No Grave. But it's a song that reminds us of the fact that we are but sojourners here on this earth. That this world is not 
our home. In a sense, we spend our whole life here sort of living out of a suitcase. And because of that, we're not always going to be comfortable. It's a song that's a bit more mournful than Ain't No Grave. It's sung in the minor key. But I enjoy it because in reminding me that this world is not my home, it not only exhorts me to do what is difficult for the sake of Christ here on this earth, but it also encourages me in this labor by lifting my thoughts to heaven and reminding me that this is not my inheritance. This world is not where I find my contentment and joy. Friends, that's something we need to be reminded of at times as Christians. As our labor in Christ will sometimes place us in less than favorable circumstances, less than ideal conditions. I'll soon be free from every trial, the song says. This form shall rest beneath the sod. I'll drop the cross of self-denial and enter in that home with God. Now, I don't know to what degree I can affirm that statement about self-denial, that it will stop on the other side of the grave, but the rest is pretty accurate. The cross part, in particular, no longer will it be a burden for us to serve others since this sinful flesh will pass away. That's something to look forward to, I think. Not just the death of death, but the death of sin. And this rest that we'll enjoy as we abide forever, meaning permanently, never to be moved again in the home of God. We are foreigners in this world. I feel like this is so much of what I've been trying to communicate to you over the past couple of years, really since we started Paul's letter to the Philippians. Week by week, month to month, I'm I'm trying to help you see what it means to live as a sojourner here on this earth, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I look out into the church at large, and I think this is so much of what afflicts us. Whether it be the spiritual apathy that we encounter in the culture and in the church, the the lack of concern over doctrine, for instance, or the, the deprioritization of personal scripture reading and prayer and church attendance, or whether it be the craving for messages that are immediately applicable and personally relevant. Messages that focus on family values, for instance, or or which are built around some inspirational concept that will help me get through my week. Even the focus on emotions that we tend to find in our worship. It all seems to be driven by this idea that A, the gospel is about me. It's primarily about improving my quality of life. And B, That it's about improving my quality of life right now. This life is really all there is, or at least the most important part. And so what Jesus did was come to help me make this life better. That seems to be the fundamental mindset that drives all of it. This very self-centered and short-sighted understanding of the gospel. And it's making us very fruitless as a church. I don't just mean our church when I say this. I mean the church universal. All in all, we seem to be losing ground evangelistically. You know, on the whole, the church is still growing, but not with respect to the increase of our population. In that respect, we're declining. We're becoming smaller, our voice fainter. Why? Well, because we can't be bothered to share our faith. Either we don't think of it, or the cost is too high, 
And then even when we do get around to it, our thoughts about it are so stunted and shallow that we can't articulate it very well. We can't explain it. And even worse, the quality of our life contradicts it. I mean, it's just a mess, honestly. And so in order to try to push back and protect you against this kind of thinking, I've tried to take you through passages that will present a different picture for you. Passages that will extend your focus beyond the short term and into eternity so that at least we as a body might not fall prey to this very sort of fruitless and vain kind of thinking. Again, that started in our exposition of Philippians. I don't know if you remember by this point, but I entitled that our study of that book, The Evangelistic Psyche, because I think that's what we get a picture of in that letter. We get a window into Paul's soul as he explains for the Philippians how he thinks about his suffering for the sake of the gospel and where he finds the wherewithal to even rejoice in his suffering for Christ. And the the general answer, in case you don't remember, was eternity. He says, chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, in what very well may be the conceptual climax to that letter. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is what motivates Paul to live the way he did. He does it all for Christ. He does it all in order to participate with Christ in his resurrection from the dead. In fact, Paul was so captured by this thought of eternity that earlier in the letter, as he ponders the prospect of potential martyrdom before Caesar and weighs the prospects of both life and death, he actually tells the Philippians, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart And be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Essentially, he says, uh, you know, I'd like to live because that means serving you here in my flesh. You know, I get to keep proclaiming the gospel in Rome. I mean, the news is spread throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, don't you know? And and after I'm out, I, I could come back to Philippi and I could serve you through my teaching. And then he says, but I tell you, on the other hand. To be with Christ, that sounds awfully appealing, personally. Whether alive or dead, whatever Paul did or wanted, it was all rooted and governed by his hope in the gospel. The idea throughout our study of that letter was that if we want to be evangelistically fruitful like Paul, if we want to be truly mature in Christ, then we need to learn to pattern our thinking according to this same outlook, this same set of priorities. We have to put off this very self-centered and short-sighted way of thinking that has been adopted by so much of the church. And we need to put on this mindset which says to live as Christ and to die as gain. As I considered where to go to discover what this looks like practically. 
It took me to 1 Corinthians. And that's where we've been for just about a year now. In this letter, Paul engages a church that's saturated with worldly philosophies over how the gospel is to be applied and what true spirituality looks like across a host of different issues. It really is a letter about Christianity applied. Christianity in, very much in, but also still distinct from the world. That's why I've I've entitled our series in this letter, Christ in the World. This is Christ in the details, Christ in the gray and even not so gray areas. And as we ask ourselves, how was Paul's thinking transformed by this eternal hope? I would say that the summary of the concepts that we've encountered lately could be stated in one word, and that's stewardship. And lately, that's been a stewardship particularly with respect to the body. The Corinthians had these questions about the body and and how to use it in light of the fact that it's passing away. And Paul's answer is to say, you use it for the maximum amount of profit. This was the idea that Paul alludes to at various points in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, but which he now makes explicit over here in 2 Corinthians 5. He tells the Corinthians, He says, this is why I suffer the way I do. This is why my bodily appearance at times seems so weak and unremarkable. It's because I understand that everyone must one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that they may receive what is due for what they've done in the body, whether good or evil. If you recall, we talked about this last week. The word for evil here is is paneros. Uh, or kakos, it's not either of those in the Greek, like what you might expect if Paul was talking about moral evil. Instead, this is a word that means something like worthless. It appears to refer more to the outcome of evil rather than just its quality. It's vain. It produces nothing useful. Paul is distinguishing between those works that produce a reward and those which earn him nothing. This is how the gospel shapes Paul's outlook on his life. For him, what matters is what happens in eternity, what lasts unto eternity. And this means that he seems everything this side of heaven, including his own body, as more or less disposable. It's not something you hold on to. It's something that you use up for the sake of eternal reward. Basically, it's an investment. And that's how I want you to be thinking of your life. That's why we're even taking a break this month to spend our time thinking about missions. I explained last week, it was about this time every year that the Jews would celebrate this festival called the Feast of Booths. This was a festival not only designed to remind Israel of the time they spent in the wilderness, but in reminding them of that time to remind them as well of their own sojourn here on this earth. It's like what we read in our call to worship last week. All of the saints from Abraham on, even before that, starting with Abel, they did what they did, not merely for some kind of earthly inheritance, but for a more permanent and abiding one. To quote Hebrews 11, 13 through 16, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Friends, we all inhabit a merely temporary kind of tent. That's what Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-10 through 10 last week. And that is at least part of what Israel's time in the wilderness pointed to. And so every year God would have them remember this time during their harvest as a way of teaching them to anticipate their future and more permanent inheritance. I want you to reflect on this same concept during the fall. As the seasons change and as we're reminded of the impermanence of this world and how it communicates to us that everything that we see here is passing away, I want you to begin to see this life in light of the more permanent inheritance that you have stored up and waiting for you in heaven. And that's why the plan is to celebrate missions during the month of October. And what I want you to consider now, as we come to the next section of 2 Corinthians 5, is how this concept of sojourning shapes our priorities in this life, even our, quote, culture, if you will, as Christians. If I can put it like this, you can typically identify a sojourner by the way they act, right? They don't necessarily act like everyone else around them. And why not? Well, it's because they're foreigners. Meaning quite often they don't speak the same language or eat the same foods or dress the same way. Even though they're living in a country like the United States of America, they still think or act like an Italian or an Indian or an Iranian. Even when they try to blend in, maybe the the language, right? Maybe they try to speak the language. Maybe they try to adopt the local style. Even still, there are hints of their foreign ancestry through things like their accent and the like. This was something else that the Feast of Booths communicated. It expressed this idea that Israel had been called out of the world in order to serve God, that they were a nation of people huddled around the light in the midst of this dark, dark world. And in this way, they were to be distinct. Well, what's distinct about us? How does this knowledge of our future home make us think and act differently? Let's go ahead and read this passage and find out. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 11-15. And we're going to read it in its context starting in verse 1. So 2 Corinthians 5, 1-15. The Apostle Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body 
and a home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In last week's message, I said that we encounter a familiar theme in this passage, and that's the body. For the past couple of months, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, and during this time, we've seen how the Corinthians struggled over their approach to sex based on their understanding of the body. There were these two groups we've seen who had very different takes on sex, but which were ultimately united in their understanding of the body. In short, they both believed that the body was passing away. And so one group said, use it and abuse it. Doesn't matter what you do with it. It's only temporary. It's going away. The other group went the opposite route, though. They said, this is exactly why we need to deny its cravings, right? Because it's going away. Over in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains what's wrong with this line of thinking, chiefly that the body is not going away, at least not in the way that we're thinking of it. It's not being eliminated, he explains, but it is being transformed into something more permanent and abiding. And now, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul is continuing to defend his ministry against those who take exception to his way of doing things. And in the process, we finally encounter his philosophy on the body. And in last week's message, I said that we could summarize his philosophy in the form of three conclusions. The first of which was this. We should use and even use up the body in service to Christ. Again, Paul understands that this body is not passing away in the sense of it simply being eliminated. But he does understand that it's only temporary. And that it will eventually be transformed into something more glorious and powerful and abiding. And he understands that when that day comes, what will matter with respect to this body, therefore, is how a person used it for the sake of Christ. And so what Paul strives to do is use up his body for the maximum amount of reward. Basically, he sees it as an expendable resource that you ultimately invest in anticipation of a greater profit down the road. If you can think about it kind of like a grocery distributor. The idea is if you have a large quantity of perishable goods, what do you do? You don't just sit around on them, right? Since that would mean a tremendous loss for the business. So what do you try to do? You try to sell off as much as you can before it hits its expiration date. That way you can use what you've earned to invest in other things, perhaps expand the business, perhaps take it home as profit. However you use it, the idea is that because it's perishable, because it has this set expiration date, you sell it off as fast as you can for the maximum amount of profit. 
That's how Paul sees the body. It's a perishable resource that needs to be sold off as efficiently as possible. The question that we should be entertaining now is, sold off for what? Spend it on what? I think we discover the answer in verse 11, where Paul continues explaining how his understanding of the body shapes his ministry by saying, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You can see what he persuades others of the further you get into this passage. Verses 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verses 20 and 21, he says, Therefore we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him, who, uh, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how Paul attempts to spend his life. He tries to use it to persuade people concerning the gospel. He spends his time speaking to them, explaining to them, even trying to convince them of this message, which says that though all men are sinners and worthy of eternal condemnation under the wrath of God, that even still they may receive eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the second conclusion that he comes to in this passage. He concludes that because our current body is temporal and in a sense passing away, we should therefore use our bodies to proclaim the gospel. So we should not only use and even use up our bodies in service to Christ, but we should use them to serve Christ by proclaiming the gospel specifically. And of course, this is the point that Paul is making in the surrounding context. All this suffering that he's encountering as his body is wasting away, it's all taking place on account of his proclamation of the gospel. So why is he doing that? Why is he sacrificing his body for the proclamation of the gospel? Well, it's because he wants a maximum reward. In a sense, you could say that there's this inverse ratio going on here where the more his body is weakened on account of the gospel, the more his reward increases. Indeed, that's what Paul does say in chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So how does Paul end up here? I want you to think about this for a moment. This might seem like a bit of a jump. Paul goes, because the body is disposable, we need to use it to seek the maximum amount of profit. And then he says, that's why I try to spend my life preaching the gospel. And he does this without a lot of explanation in between. In fact, he doesn't even really provide the explanation for this conclusion in the verses that follow. So where is this coming from? How does the math work out in this equation? 
Again, I don't think we discover the answer to this in this section of text. We discover the conclusion, actually, in verse 11. But I think the, 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 we do find the answer both in the surrounding context as well in some con- uh, concepts that we've discussed recently in 1 Corinthians 7. So what's the answer to this? Well, first, Paul has just told us in verse 10 that, quote, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So again, Paul tells us that the reason he's using the body this way is because he's seeking the maximum amount of reward. Well, what is it that produces this? We've talked about this only recently in our study of 1 Corinthians 7. What is the proper expression of spiritual ambition? Based off of how Paul is framing this, you might be tempted to say, well, it's gospel impact. The reason why Paul preaches the gospel is because he's trying to maximize his reward. That must mean that the more people you convert, the more people you persuade, the greater the reward. Only that's not what Paul actually said over in 1 Corinthians 7, right? If you recall in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is dealing with these spiritually ambitious people. They're trying to climb rank, so to speak, in the kingdom of heaven. They're trying to become the very best Christians that they know how to be. They're trying to become the absolutely most spiritual that they can possibly become. And what they're wrestling with is if this requires some kind of change in their position. If they're married, do they need to try to become single? If they're a slave, perhaps should they try to become free? And do you guys remember, how does Paul answer them? He says, remain as you are. He actually frames the whole thing, not in terms of what they produce for Christ, but in terms of their dedication unto Christ. And then he says, that's something you can accomplish in whatever position you're in. Point being, greatness in the kingdom of heaven is not defined by what a person produces for God. It's defined, rather, by a person's dedication to God. If it weren't that way, then you wouldn't see Paul come to the conclusion that he comes to in 1 Corinthians 7. Instead, he'd say, you should change your position in life. Because as we saw, in terms of this ambition to do, there probably are some positions that are more advantageous than others. You know, Paul probably is not going to save as many people by remaining in Antioch as he would by traveling across the earth to proclaim the gospel. So how does he get here? Why does Paul say, I want to maximize my impact for Christ, therefore I proclaim the gospel? Well, it has to do with obedience, actually, not ministry output. This is particularly true of the Apostle Paul. I think we forget sometimes that Paul was personally commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel. For instance, when the resurrected Lord tells Ananias to go and visit Paul, and Ananias objects by saying, but Lord, do you know how much he's persecuted us? Jesus answers by saying, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The same thing happens later on in Antioch. We probably shouldn't forget how Paul ended up on the mission field. He didn't exactly volunteer for it, at least not that we know of. 
Instead, we're told in Acts 13 that the church in Antioch was praying and fasting when the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So Paul was personally called to become a missionary and preach the gospel. In fact, this is a calling that Paul was very much aware of and even refers to on occasion as he explains why he travels the world proclaiming Christ. Uh, He does this at the beginning of Ephesians 3, for instance. In other words, there's probably a reason why Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel later in 1 Corinthians 9. And that's because he specifically, of all people, has been commanded by Christ to engage in this work. And yet at the same time, he's not the only one, right? Every single one of us in this room has been called upon to take part in Christ's great commission. That doesn't necessarily mean that we've all been called to be missionaries like the Apostle Paul. Instead, you know, we might be the one holding the rope over in Antioch while they support Paul as he goes on the mission field, as he goes to places like Corinth. But regardless of our role, we have all been commanded by Christ to participate in this endeavor in some form or fashion. We've all been tasked with owning Christ before men, right? Of testifying to his name. Jesus even goes so far as to warn us that those who deny him before men will be denied by him before his Father in heaven. Well, listen, if reward is distributed on the basis of one's dedication to Christ, and if, as we've seen over the past several weeks, dedication is expressed in obedience, not status, guess what that means? It means that we're going to proclaim the gospel. It means that we use our body to serve Christ, but we're going to use it by serving Christ by proclaiming the gospel specifically since this is something that Christ commands us to do. This seems to be at least one reason why Paul comes to the conclusion he does in verse 11, probably the major reason. There are a couple of other reasons that we can discern from the text as well. For example, back in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul talks about how this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And if you recall last week, I said that this probably refers in part to this resurrection body. That is part of the glory that's being produced through Paul's suffering. His body is being sown in dishonor and weakness, but chapter 5, he knows that it will be raised in glory and power. However, I also said last week that I think it probably refers as well to this increasing demonstration of the grace of God that's occurring as more and more people come to faith in the gospel. I say this because just before that, in verse 15, Paul tells the Corinthians that his suffering is, quote, all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I tell you, there's something interesting uh, going on in the first half of that verse. I don't have time to get into, into that today, but the basic idea of the second half is that as the gospel advances, more and more people give thanks to God for his grace, and this magnifies and manifests the glory of God. I think you probably know what Paul means by that. For example, how do you feel when you see someone in the waters of baptism? 
Does it remind you afresh of God's power and grace in the life of the sinner? Doesn't it make you want to praise God as you see his grace expressed in the life of the repentant sinner? That seems to be another reason that Paul is so driven to proclaim the gospel. Not only does he want to see God glorified as an expression of thanksgiving to God on account of the mercy that God has shown to Paul, but if I could put it this way, Paul's a grace junkie. There are few things that thrill Paul more than seeing the grace of God displayed through the praise of redeemed and transformed sinners. Meaning it's almost as if Paul expects that the volume of heaven will become louder and louder with each successive convert. The grace of God becoming clearer and greater and more manifest. It's like if you've ever ever been in a worship service and as you scan across the room thinking about the grace that's been displayed in the people around you as they sing. That as you do this, you find yourself more enthralled by the mercy of God and more excited to sing his praises. That's sort of like what Paul anticipates in heaven. As grace extends to more and more people, it increases thanksgiving to the glory of God. And this in turn reveals more and more of God's glory to us. That's part of this eternal weight of glory that that makes Paul's inner self stronger and more resolved, even as his outer self continues to waste away. His body is beaten and battered. And yet with every single convert, he's only seeing more of the grace of God and more of the grace of God. And this only whets his appetite for the grace that will finally be revealed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third reason is more of a logical uh, conclusion based off of what Paul has just told us in verses 1 through 10, more than it is anything explicit he said in the context. Why should the temporal nature of the body lead us to spend this life attempting to persuade others? Well, think about it. If everything in this creation is passing away, even including the body, if the only thing that's permanent is the soul, and along with it the resurrection body with which it's raised, then this means that the only kind of work that we'll do here, which will last which will survive into eternity, will be that work we do in the human soul. Now, to be clear, I think this reason is probably less in view here in verse 11 than the other two. There's not a lot here in this context to come to the conclusion that Paul proclaims the gospel because he doesn't want his labor on this earth to be in vain. His focus is more on the reward he'll receive for this work, his paycheck, so to speak, than it is on the actual product of his work. Still, this is still an implication of verses 1 through 10 that I don't think we should lose sight of. It's like what Solomon observes in Ecclesiastes. A man can work his whole life, and not only does he die, never to enjoy it again, but even what he leaves behind to others can't be guaranteed to endure beyond a single generation. doesn't matter how wise and diligent you are in your labor. It's all impermanent. It's all temporary. It's all vanity. And so it makes sense for the Christian to spend their life sowing spiritual seed, heavenly seed, investing in a harvest that will survive the judgment. And what does that require? It requires a proclamation of the gospel, right? 
That's the only message that saves. Like what Paul says here in verses 14 and 15. One has died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for their sake died and was raised. As he says in verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how people are saved. It's through faith in Jesus Christ. Only in Christ can a person be saved because only Christ has offered himself up as an offering for sin. Only Christ can impute the kind of righteousness that we need to stand before God. And so if we're going to spend this life investing in eternal things, then it's going to require proclaiming this message to people. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is probably my biggest motivator to be involved in ministry, personally. I'm not a pastor because I think that it earns me points with God. I know it doesn't. Rather, I chose to become a pastor because I figured I only have one life to spend. And so why not spend it on something permanent, something that lasts? And as I tried to figure out what that looks like, where my role on the team is, so to speak, and how I can maximize what the Lord has entrusted to me for the sake of the gospel, it led me into pastoral ministry. I don't know that there are many in here who will necessarily share that same calling, but I would expect that all of us should be thinking this way. How can I maximize my time and talents for eternal things for the advancement of the gospel? This is another reason why the temporal nature of the body should push us to not only spend our lives for Christ, but to spend them for the advancement of the gospel specifically, because the result of gospel proclamation is permanent, whereas everything else is changing and impermanent. Now, I want you to see how this all changes the way Paul lives. I know that we've spent most of our time here this morning unpacking verse 11. Really, I think we could even say the therefore of verse 11, that, that you know what leads Paul to this conclusion. But I want to show you very briefly how this conclusion affects Paul's way of life here on this earth. Again, I've said that we're sojourners here on this earth, that this should probably mean that we're going to do things a little differently than the world. Well, look now at how this priority, how Paul's desire to preach the gospel shapes Paul's way of life. I tell you, if we had time, I'd probably like to spend two or three Sundays unpacking this point, but for now we're going to have to spend just the next five to ten minutes on it. So the temporal nature of the body and the priority of the gospel uh, that, that comes out of this, this gospel preaching, I think we can see it affected the way Paul preached the gospel in three ways. Okay, First, it caused him to preach the gospel radically. It caused him to preach the gospel radically. This point is a little bit out of order from the flow of the passage, but I put it first because I think it's going to help you see what's going on here. Paul notes in verse 13 that, quote, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Do you understand what Paul means there? Paul wasn't just sort of halfway committed to preaching the gospel. No, his hope was so firmly fixed on what was taking place in the next life that at times it literally made people question his sanity. I mean, just think about it. We just read from Philippians how he'd really rather be dead if it were strictly up to him. According to chapter 4, his body is so afflicted for the cause of Christ 
that he speaks of his outer self as wasting away. And yet, oddly enough, in spite of that, you don't see Paul complaining about his condition. He's not exactly sad or depressed like what you might expect from a normal person when they encounter severe affliction. Instead, the more he suffers, the happier he gets. I mean, that's weird, isn't it? You know, Paul gave up all his status as a Pharisee, all his comfort in this life, even eventually his life in service to the gospel because he valued the outcome of that that much more. Again, that's weird, isn't it? Friends, that's what a right understanding of eternity does. It so reorders a person's priorities that the kinds of decisions they make look odd by comparison. That's what the Corinthians think. They see Paul's commitment for Christ, and they're going, you know, don't you think something seems a little bit off about Paul? He doesn't act at all normal. To which Paul can only say, verse 14, right? I can't help it. The love of Christ controls me. I have to do this. I have to tell people about this. I think of the missionary William Borden, who we talked about just a few weeks ago. Here's this young, bright millionaire. And what does he choose to do? He decides to leave it all behind to go and preach Christ in China. Although, of course, he doesn't make it. He died of cerebral meningitis in Egypt before he ever made it to China. And he was just 25 years old. You know what they wrote on his tombstone? The words were written by one of Borden's seminary professors who knew him well at Princeton. And he said, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Friends, that's what hope in eternity does to people. It radicalizes Christians to the degree that they do and they say things that don't align with the culture. That's as it should be. If we're foreigners here on this earth, we should expect that we'll act like it from time to time and say and do some things that don't make sense to the surrounding culture because we don't share their values. Second, this mindset caused Paul to preach the gospel faithfully. If you can't tell from the first point, Paul didn't always enjoy the esteem of those he ministered to, right? Some revered him as an apostle, but many more mocked him. He was laughed out of Athens. Festus would eventually declare about Paul. He'd say, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind in Acts 26. It was obviously no different in Corinth. By the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's actually having to defend his ministry against those who are trying to tear it down, saying, you know, well, yeah, he certainly doesn't act like an apostle. You look here what Paul says in verses 11 and 12, and it's apparent that most of the Corinthians are on Paul's side now, but he's aware of the fact that this is only going to serve to put them in a difficult position by trying to defend Paul in his ministry. Now, how did Paul respond to this ridicule? You see it in verse 11. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Again, verse 11, But what we are is known to God. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves again to you. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. 
Verses 14 and 15, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I mean, do you see a theme here? I think it's especially notable in verse 11 when he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The idea is that if Christ is the one who Paul is seeking the reward from, then who does he need to please? It's not man. It's not the philosophers of Mars Hill and Athens. It's not the Corinthians or these so-called super apostles in their midst. It's Christ alone. His is the only opinion that matters. It's a point that Paul makes in the preceding context as well. Chapter 3, he says, you want letters, letters of recommendation? It's you. There are no men that confirm our ministry. God does. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the, the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then starting in verse 3, he says, And by the way, and if people don't get that, if they reject what we have to say to them, well, that's because their eyes have been blinded by Satan. It's not our fault. There's nothing we can do about it. People may question why Paul has to suffer the way he does. And Paul's response is to say, well, what do you want me to do? I can only say what God has told me to say. He's the one that's going to judge me. I'm seeking his approval. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the absolutely most sane and logical conclusion that a person can come to if they believe this message. What's weird, I'll tell you, what's weird, what's insane, are those who say that they agree with Paul with respect to the gospel and then not go and live how he lives. When we soften or adjust this message to make it less offensive, for instance, that's the insane thing to do. In the words of Jesus, Matthew 10, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So it caused this hope, caused Paul to preach the gospel radically. It caused him to preach the gospel faithfully. Now finally, third and last effect, this eternal gospel-oriented mindset caused Paul to preach the gospel lovingly. It caused him to preach the gospel lovingly. This comes out in verses 13 through 15. He says, "For we, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know, as we continue through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see that Paul wasn't always weird. He wasn't always weird. There were actually some instances where he abandoned the kinds of practices that would typically set him apart as a Jew and instead assimilate into the culture. Essentially, he would act incredibly normal, exceedingly normal. Here he tells us, he says, you want to know what accounts for that? He tells the Corinthians, it's you. If we seem crazy, that's because of our love, our, uh, our love for God. It forces us to it. 
But if we seem in our right mind, that's actually for you. As he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23, he says, To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Why does Paul act the way he does? Why does he upend his life and adopt whatever lifestyle and practices best communicates the gospel? Again, he tells us here, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says it all comes down to this message of reconciliation. Christ died for all types of people from all different types of walk of life, all different cultures. And Paul himself has been redeemed by this Savior so that he could live not for himself, but for the sake of him who for his sake died and was raised. And so if that's what it takes for Paul to share this message for others, that the Christ died for them too, if that's what he must do to serve his Savior in this way, if it requires some shedding of his own identity, surrendering some of his own rights and privileges in Christ for the sake of the gospel, then so be it. Reason being, he's been placed in service to Christ. And Christ has demonstrated his love for the world in the gospel. You see, what this gospel message does is it places Paul's focus outside of himself. Yes, he's seeking a reward, and yet this reward is gained by being faithful to Christ. And what Christ wants from Paul is to share this message with the world without alteration or apology. Paul's not to be so self-centered so as to proclaim the gospel in a way that protects himself. He's to proclaim it in a way that maximizes its clarity in the lives of others. Sometimes that may require some kind of adjustment that allows Paul to assimilate. Many other times, though, it will require Paul to stand out and be set apart. This is what it looks like to live in light of eternity. This is what it means to be a spiritual sojourner on this earth. It means both being distinct from the world while at the same time loving the world and seeking their good. It means, even in the words of Paul, becoming a slave to all. Christ died for all. It should only be expected that if we're citizens of his kingdom and if we adopt his conduct and practices, then we too will be a slave to all. Like what Paul says back in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, even when he suffers, right? What does he tell the Corinthians? He says, it's all for you. As he says as well in chapter 1, verse 6, if he's afflicted, it's for their sake. If he's comforted, it's also for their sake. Whatever situation he's in, he does it all to share the love of Christ with those around him. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are indeed sojourners on this planet. If we believe the gospel, then we should understand that our home is not here on earth but in heaven. How does that change the way that we live now? Well, it should not only cause us to want to invest this life in eternal things through the proclamation of the gospel, but it should lead us to do this radically, faithfully, and lovingly. 
Let's go ahead and pray. Close by praying that God would help us to do just that.